Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind, take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. The Old Testament book of Nehemiah, if you wouldn't mind. We are finishing up currently this series in Esther. So Nehemiah sounds a little bit different of where we're going. But I will plug it in and tie it up in a nice bow here in just a bit. The book of Nehemiah and chapter number 2. We've gone through the book of Esther and we've explored this historical account of this young lady who God raised up for the purpose of saving her people. If you remember that there was uh, kill the Jew day in the Persian Empire raised up by Haman, the Jews enemy. But through it, God raised up a young lady and gave her influence and put her in a position where she could influence the king. And God overturned the kill the Jew day to a day of victory throughout the Persian Empire and the Jewish people. And now as we see several years down the road in the book of Jeremiah, we can see, still see the influence of Esther as it now applies to the book of Nehemiah and these historical events. And so if you don't mind, look with me in the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah in chapter number 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, and notice with me in verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse number 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was given before him, and I took the wine and gave it to him unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art not sick? Is this nothing else but sorrow of heart? Then I was very sore afraid. And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lie waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed unto God of heaven. Then I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him set him a time. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 2? Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse number 6, the phrase, the queen sitting by him. The queen sitting by him. And with the Lord's help, I would like to preach to you a message here about the queen sitting by him. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. 
For you being a God who hears and answers prayer. For you the God who gives victory. You the God who moves and sees the end from the beginning and knows how to guide us. As I come up to you now, I'm asking, Lord, that you would give grace and mercy, discernment and wisdom above and beyond what anything I have. Lord, I'm very conscious of the spiritual warfares that occurred earlier, even just kind of popping up here and there. And enough that I recognize that I need to be dead to self now. So the best I know how I surrender my thoughts, my tongue, my lips, my voice, my strength, my health, my mind. I give it all to you. And I ask that you fill me with your precious spirit. And that you would get your own work accomplished. Even things that I wouldn't even think of. That you would get it accomplished tonight. In the hearts of these men and women here. That by the time we walk out of here. We'd all be saying what a great God. What a great God. And only you can do that. Glorify your own name. I just reckon myself dead. I'm just asking that you do your own work tonight. Through your precious word. And in Jesus name. Amen. As we come to this passage, it seems a little bit odd to end the book of Esther in the book of Nehemiah. But the first thing I'd like to do tonight is show you the identification of this queen. The identification of the queen. Now at this time, the king who is ruling the Persian Empire is Artaxerxes. He's known in history as Artaxerxes Longamus. He is the son of Xerxes the Great. Now, we'd already identified in the book of Esther that according to modern dating, that Xerxes the Great was the, was the Ahasuerus. Remember, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes are titles and not necessarily names. Just like we would say Caesar or Pharaoh. Well, here, the guy actually is named Artaxerxes. That's pretty egotistical to name your kid King King. <laughs> and so that's what he was. He was Artaxerxes Longamus, and he is the son of Xerxes. He's the son of the Ahasuerus, the Persian king of the book of Esther. Now, in verse number six, notice what it says. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him. Now, remember, the Bible does not just put things arbitrarily inside of the word of God. When it's putting this parenthetical phrase, what it is doing is it's putting emphasis here on that there was someone else in the room and that this was the queen. Now, normally, queens in the Bible are either direct rulers like Jezebel or Athaliah, someone who has direct control, if they're not influential within a story, they're maybe mentioned by name, but not very emphasized. The reason why this is being emphasized is because it's not the queen, his wife, but it's the queen mother, which would be Esther. So during this time, as Nehemiah is standing before Artaxerxes, it is also noticed that the queen mother is standing behind and sitting right there, but in there in the mist. And it is showing the influence she has during this time of Nehemiah. So now what's going on? Remember in chapter 1 of Nehemiah that Nehemiah hears word that... The walls of Jerusalem are not rebuilt. Uh, Nehemiah had spent some time with Ezra rebuilding the walls. He was known in the book of Ezra as the Tershereth, which means second command. You'll see him as that title in the book of Ezra. So 
Nehemiah was already familiar with Jerusalem. He was part of Ezra's team. He was helped part of the governor team of helping rebuild the temple inside of um, Jerusalem during those times of the time of the restoration. Now, Nehemiah came back and he was risen up to the to the prestigious title of cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer isn't just someone you get off the street and say, hey, taste my food, make sure it's not poison. If you die, then, you know, then I know not to eat it. But instead, the cupbearer was one of the highest positions within any court, whether you go back to Greek or you go back to Egyptian or Persian. They were a very high position that the cupbearer, his job was to oversee all the staff and all the servants. His job was to make sure that the food was not poison. Remember, this is a time of assassinations and all kinds of things going on. And so. The cupbearer would be the person who's in charge and make, he, it's, he's giving his stamp of approval that nothing is poison. That when he ceremonially takes a drink of the cup before handing it to the king and he ceremonial takes a bite of the food, what he's doing is he's saying, I bet, guarantee my own life that everything is done decently in order, you enjoy and eat, I am guaranteeing your safety by tasting it myself. And so this was someone who was in a trusted position. Normally a cupbearer would also be a sounding board. He would be such a trusted advisor that the king would often shoot ideas off to him and say, you know, I'm thinking about doing this and I'm thinking about doing that. What do you think about this? How does that sound? You know, Even us, we use sounding boards. Has there ever been something that made sense in your head? And then when you told someone else, it just, eh, maybe it's not a good idea after all. Well, that's what the cupbearer was to do. He was the sounding board. He was one of the most trusted, honored uh, officials within the king's court. And so... Nehemiah had heard how Jerusalem was still laying at waste. Remember, in the ancient world, a city to be protected, they needed walls. Walls would protect the city from bandits. They would protect the city from animals. Remember, there's animals like lions and stuff still running around. You don't want to wake up in the morning and find a lion outside your front door. That would kind of be awkward. That it would keep armies to come out. So any city that didn't have any walls surrounding it, it had no protection. It was open to the elements. It was open to the wild. It was open to pillagers. Bandits can come in at any time and rob the people. And there was very little a city could do about it. And so Nehemiah is thinking about this and he's burdened for it. And he starts meditating. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 1, it occurs in the book of November. Nehemiah chapter 2 occurs in the book of March. So he's been meditating from November to March. And he's thinking and it's boiling over. And he's thinking about it more. Notice what occurs back in verse number 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, which is at the end of March, beginning of um, April, the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. And I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. Now, the reason why is because there's a law against it. 
You know, if you're the king and you've got so many things on your mind, you don't want your servants boohooing and having their sad face on when they're serving you. You've got enough stuff going on. You don't want to worry about everybody else's. So there's pretty much a law saying that you have to put on your happy face before the king. You have the great privilege to serve him. You put all your personal stuff aside. You be happy. You be ready to go. You do your best. But it, now it had affected him. It's been, it's been eating at him since November. Now it's March and it's just burning him. And now his face is showing it. His countenance is sad. He hasn't before time been sad, but this was one of those days that's weighing heavy on him. Verse number uh, 2. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was sore afraid. So the king had very good discernment. He says, you know, you're not sick. Your face, there's something breaking your heart. And Nehemiah sore afraid. He says, uh-oh, I'm not supposed to be sad before the king. Who knows what's going to happen now? Uh-oh. Verse number three. And said the king. Let, or, so Nehemiah responds. And said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lie waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? So Nehemiah said, well, king, to be honest, what's bothering me is I, I'm thinking about my home. I'm thinking about Jerusalem and I'm thinking about how it's laid at waste and the walls are down and the, the, the gates are burning, which is uh, symbolic language talking about that it's just destroyed anyone can walk in and out he says i'm thinking about home and i'm thinking about how it could be destroyed and i'm thinking about how it needs to be rebuilt he says this is what's bothering me king verse number four then the king said unto me for what dost thou make a request he says all right nehemiah what do you want to do about it and notice what he did very wisely he said lord <laughs> i need your help before he opened up, he said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He said, I got to take a time out. God, I need wisdom now. I need help. I want to answer wisely. And he began to speak. Verse number five. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if the servant hath been found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah and unto the city of my father's sepulcher, that I may build it. He says, king, this is my request. Will you send me back to Jerusalem and put me in charge of rebuilding the walls? Uh, that's what I want to do, King. That's, I, I want to go back and I want to personally oversee that the city is over rebuilt. So now it's time for the, the king to respond, which comes to the second thing I want to show you. Not only the identification of the queen, but the influence of the queen. The influence of the queen. Notice, and the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? And wilt will thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him a time. So here we see the king grants his request, but the Bible again puts an emphasis that the queen is there. So let's go back to the book of Esther, and let's look at this influence and how it was built. Notice with me in the book of Esther in chapter number 10, which is the next book. Um, after Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Esther. So it should be just a couple pages away. If we grab too much, you'll get into Job. The book of Esther, chapter 10. The book of Esther, chapter 10. Now, after the events of Esther, uh, dealing with Purim, dealing with Haman, dealing with the official kill the Jude, 
God raised Mordecai, Esther's cousin, to oversee, to be second in charge of the Persian Empire. We see that in Esther chapter 10. Notice with me in verse number 1. And King Ahasuerus, so this is a title, Ahasuerus. This is going to be the father of Artaxerxes that we find in Nehemiah. And King Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. And all of the acts of his power and his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereupon the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Now notice in verse 2 that here it's talking about Mordecai and everything he did is not recorded necessarily in the Bible. But notice in the Chronicles and the kings of Media and Persia. That Mordecai's influence was so spread that it went outside of the Bible and went into the history books of the actual Persian Empire. That he was such a leader and such wise and his decision making and the things that he, they did, they put him in the history books of the influence that he had inside of the Persian Empire. Could you imagine different influences that we've had in our own country? What would it be like if we could get George Washington to stand right here? And to hear his stories and to get the influence that he had. I mean, we go back. Isn't George Washington one of the first things that kids are taught in American history? They're taught that this is an important person. And the influence that he had, he made the history books. You know, there's some people who don't make the history books. But the people who do make the history books, they have great influence. And he had great influence over the people and the lives of the Persian Empire. Verse number 3. For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king Ahasuerus. Now that's language speaking about here's king Ahasuerus. His second in command was Mordecai. So he's the one who's carrying out all these orders. He's the one who's overseeing the operations. Notice what it goes on. Next to the king Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren. Notice that. And accepted of the multitude of his brethren. You know how popular you have to be when you're accepted by all the brethren? We even look at our current election. It doesn't matter what candidate got accepted. The whole country doesn't seem to accept either one of them. Uh, you know... We don't have that unity. But Mordecai was such a wise leader that he was accepted of all of his brethren, among the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people and seeking peace to all of his seed. That Mordecai had laid a foundation to protect the Jewish people, to protect the, the citizens, and also help administrate the things of Persia. So we see the great influence of Mordecai, but remember who the queen is, that's Esther, who had already showed herself wise, and it was her influence that that helped raise Artaxerxes. Now, let's think about this. That Artaxerxes, at worst, was Esther's stepmother. You know how much influence a mother has? There's an old phrase that says, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Because a mother has so much influence. And that even if Esther was not the biological mother, even if she was just the stepmother, she had a lot of influence on the raising, on the overseeing of little Artaxerxes. So much that when years later, when Nehemiah stands before him and the queen is right there, because of the influence of his stepmother, 
he was also willing to be kind and grant the request of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah had raised him up to a trusted position on his own, but still that influence was probably a big deal. That influence is a big key. Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He was brokenhearted. But it was the influence of Esther that helped do a black uh, undercurrent today. Now, with that, I want to bring up the idea of influence. Turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Influence cannot be understated. Influence is so important. Every single one of us have influence. And because of that, we have to guard our influence. In fact, someone said that influence is our only true tool, our only true weapon that we have of ourself is influence. Notice with me in the book of Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 in verse number 1. It says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is Weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. So here it is. It's bringing up a a disputation that even people have today. There are some people that says, I can eat meat. I can have me a nice juicy steak. And there's nothing wrong with it. Then you got some people that says, I don't eat meat. I eat herbs, I eat nothing but plants, I want my salad, I want my tomatoes, I want my cucumbers, I don't want any of that barbaric meat and whatever else. And so even today, don't we have people who look at those other things, they look at the vegetarians, and they look at the carnivores, and they look at either one, and they fight, and they argue, and whatever. But notice what the Bible says about this. Him that is weak in faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So here we have a principle that is very important. It's called individual soul liberty. This is something that the Baptist people have bled and died for for all these centuries. This doctrine of individual soul liberty. What does individual soul liberty state? Individual soul liberty states that because every single one of us have access to God, meaning that everyone could talk to God if we wanted to, that we have the right and responsibility to find God's will for ourselves. So what that means is that if I want to find God's will... I go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? And whatever he tells me, I need to do it. You see, one day we're all going to stand before God and give an account. You're not going to stand before your pastor. You're not going to stand before your president. You're going to stand before God. And you're going to give an account for how well you obeyed him. And so if someone says, as for me and my house, we're eating steak. Well, know that one day you're going to stand before God and give an account for that action. If someone says, you know, I don't care. This is how I believe. I believe we should eat plants. That's fine. You live your life knowing that one day you're going to stand before God and give an account. Now, the Bible's giving a very small thing that people fight against. But we understand with the individual soul liberty, I don't have to make people believe what I want, what I believe. I don't have to. I don't have to twist someone's arm and say, you have to believe just like I do. I don't have to do that. You know what we do have? We do have influence. 
You know all I am? I'm a messenger. I give people information and they make their own choice based off the information given to them. I don't have to make them believe like I do. I don't have to put a gun to their head or put a sword to their throat. I don't have to force people. I don't have to get upset because people believe like I do. That you could believe whatever you want knowing that one day you will stand before God and give an account for what you believe and how you behave. I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account. By the way, I have a hard enough time keeping myself in line. I don't have to worry about everyone else. But isn't this a freeing doctrine? You know, as a pastor, it doesn't bother me. I had another pastor who, who was talking with me the other day. And he says, what do you do when you got someone in the church who doesn't believe like, like you do? I said, praise the Lord. I don't want cookie cutter Christians. I don't think God does either. You know what? I'm going to teach the Bible and leadership is going to teach according to our statement of faith at church. But anyone can come in. Anyone can enjoy the fellowship. Anyone. They don't have to believe everything that I do. Now, I want to influence them. And as a pastor, guess what? I'm going to take the Bible and I'm going to go line upon line and I'm going to teach what the Bible says. And then guess what? At the end of every service, we got something called an invitation where people respond to what they heard from the Bible. And so what they're going to do is say, Lord, that's what the Bible says. So I'm going to believe it and I'm going to change my life according to what is the Bible says. You see, that's a freeing doctrine. And if someone says, I choose not to believe that, they're allowed to knowing that one day they're going to stand before God and give an account. You see, this is a helpful doctrine. It is a wonderful, as a pastor, the stress is off of me. I'm just the messenger. I'm not going to stand before God for the choices you make. I'm the pastor and I want to guard things. But when you stand before God, you stand by yourself, by the decisions you made, knowing that you could have asked him for direction and he would have given you that direction if you asked for it. So this idea, but what I have, since I can't make people believe, the only tool I have is influence. Notice as it goes on in Romans 14. It says, who art, verse number four, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall hold, be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. So who are we that we go over to someone else's employee and say, Haha, I wouldn't have done, let him get away with that. Well, you, he doesn't stand before you. He stands before his own boss. Same thing's true. I stand before God and I give an account to God. And you give an account to God. You don't give an account to me. Verse number five. One man esteemeth one day above another, and another every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So one guy says, you know what? I think Sundays, no one should ever work Sundays. And another person says, you know, every day should be holy to God. I should live every day pleasing to God. Does that make sense? And so, But the Bible says you need to be fully persuaded that what you believe and why you believe it and be consistent with it, knowing that one day you're going to stand before him and give an account. Verse number six. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the, to the day, re, to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. So here's that thing. You know, when I give, eat, I say a prayer and I ask God to thank you for the food. And I give it to God. Thank you for giving me this food. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not. And giveth God thanks. 
For none of this, verse 7, for none of us live to himself and no man dieth to himself. Now we come to the idea of influence. We do not live in a bubble. The actions that I do, by the way, don't only affect me, they affect other people. So this is the idea of influence. That if I want to have influence, well, we all have influence over someone. No, someone looks up to you. You know, you'd be surprised, even adults who are members of this church, what children look up to you now. That think that you are the hero and you say, oh man, no one should look at me. Someone is always looking at you. Whether someone at school, someone at work, someone at home. People are watching you. And they're watching your life. And they're not just looking at what you say. They're looking at how you behave. And that is a matter of influence. We, through our actions, what we say and what we do, can draw people closer to the Lord. And our actions and the way we behave and the way we speak can push people away from the Lord. For example, if I say, come to church, come to church, come to church. And then I go live like a heathen. You know what I do? I push people away. People say, I don't want to serve a God like that. I, I, I don't want to have anything to do with what you have. You know, that hypocriteness, that, that inconsistentness, that pushes people away. However, when we, as Christians, who are able to have a peace that passes all understanding, not of us, but the Holy Spirit, when people watch us and the storms of life hit, and people watch as bad things happen, and watch as horrible things occur... And that we can still have a peace and say God is still good and God is still right. People say, there's something to what they believe. I'm interested to know more. You see, we have an influence and we have to guard that influence. You know, I can destroy in 30 seconds what it took 30 years to build. Because I mess up. Because of the influence that I have. You know, even as a pastor, I have to guard my influence more. Because my mistakes can hurt a lot more people. That we know that we all have influence. We have to guard that what we have. By the way, if you ever lose your influence over someone, you'll wish you have it, had it back. Maybe a parent who wasn't consistent and their kids watch that. If you lose influence over your children, it's hard to gain it back. If you lose influence over a spouse, it's hard to get it back. We, when you hurt someone with your life, it is hard to gain that influence back. That's why we have to guard and protect that influence we have. Because it's truly the only tool. Why should someone listen to you? Because the influence you've gained with people. You know, even as a pastor and a pastor's wife, my wife and I know that the first time we meet someone, we're not going to change them. <laughs> we have to get a relationship. They have to see how we live our lives. They have to see how our kids are raised. They have to see the consistency we had. And then after a while, people say, you know, there's something to that. And they allow us to influence them after that. But I can't make people believe the only thing I could do is influence them for the Lord. And that's what the Bible is saying right here in the book of Romans. Notice as it goes on in verse 8. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. Basically, we're still God's. No matter what you do, you're still God. Verse number 9. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? 
For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse number 10 is very important. We can criticize people all we want. But you understand that you're going to stand before God and give an account. We have to mind our own business. That's a good phrase. Mind your own business. We have enough hard time trying to keep ourselves in line. Knowing that one day we're going to stand before God. We can look someone else. Well, I wouldn't raise my kids that way. Well, you know. They're going to stand before God and give an account, not you. We have enough time minding our own business. We have to be careful with what we do. Notice as it goes on, verse 11. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account to himself to God. Here we're all going to stand before God. So someone may say, preacher, what about... Islam, Mohammedans, do you think they have the right to believe in Allah? Absolutely. Knowing that one day they're going to stand before God and they're going to give an account for their actions. People are allowed to believe whatever they want. Someone says, I don't believe in a God at all. That's fine. You're allowed to believe whatever you want, knowing that one day you will stand before God and you will give an account for what your life is. People are allowed to believe and do whatever they want. But there is a payday someday. Someone said, life is like a cafeteria line. You choose whatever you want, but at the end, you're going to have to pay for it. Now, as a preacher, my desire is to influence people to the Lord so it's a better judgment day one day when they stand before God. But I don't have to make people believe the way they want. Again, it's a freeing doctrine. It's a wonderful doctrine. It's what the Baptist people have bled and died for for the centuries. You know, for different types of churches have said, listen here, you either get baptized or we kill you. We don't believe that at all. We believe that people should follow the Lord and because they believe it's the Lord's will for them. Someone says, listen here, you're going to get saved or we're going to kill you. That's not how the Lord said to do it. We, should, we have influence. We encourage them. We influence them. We can't make them. Once again, it's a freeing doctrine when you realize I don't have to make people believe it. I don't have to get frustrated because someone believes something different than me. They're allowed to, knowing that one day they're going to stand before God and give an account. But the important thing is our influence. For example... We all have people to influence. Do the people around you know that you're a Christian? Do the people around you know that you're going to heaven and why you're going to heaven? Do you know that there are people that you have in your circle that I will never meet? That you have people that you get to witness to that God has placed in your, in your direct path that you may be the only person that gets to tell them about heaven. That I may never knock on the door. I may never cross their path. We all have people to influence. We all have people to reach. We all have people that we want to encourage for the Lord. But we have to use that influence wisely. You say, what is this thing about heaven? Well, the wonderful thing about heaven is that heaven's a perfect place. But none of us are perfect people. Do you know I'm a pastor I'm going to tell you a secret. You may have to go, but I've told lies before. How many of you ever told a lie before? We all have. If you haven't raised your hand, you're a liar, right? We've all told lies. The Bible says in one of the Ten Commandments that thou shall not bear false witness. Don't tell lies. But we're all guilty of that. 
I'm going to tell you another secret. It may shock you. The Bible says to honor thy father and mother. To basically to obey your folks. All right. Pastor has disobeyed his folks before. <gasps> How many of you ever disobeyed your folks before? Right. We all have. You know the Bible says that same thing in Romans 3.23 where it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says in order to go to heaven we have to be perfect. But we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed it. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible goes on to say in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. A wage is something we earn. For example, when we go to work, we earn a wage. The word death means separation. For example, we had a funeral here. We would have a casket and we would have a body there. But that body... And that soul is separated. The body's there, but the soul is separated forever. That's what we call death. There's a separation. Well, the Bible says that heaven is a perfect place. But because of our sin, the wage that we earn, oh God, is separation. That instead of going to a perfect place called heaven, we deserve to be separated out. And when we die, there's only two places to go. A wonderful place called heaven or an awful place called hell. You know, the Bible says that God never intended a single human to go there. He created hell to punish Satan and his demons. But unfortunately, because there's nowhere else to go, man goes there by default. That's what we deserve because of our sin. We deserve to be separated from, an, from a perfect, righteous God. Now, all I told you right now is bad news. Let me tell you what the good news is. The good news is that God loved you so much, he didn't want you to go to that awful place called hell. So what he did is that God robed himself in flesh and came down on this earth, born in a manger and was known as Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who, who was God robed in flesh. And Jesus went through the same temptations, the same troubles and the same heartbreaks that you went through and that I went through. The only difference is that Jesus lived his life perfect. He never did anything wrong. Then he died on the cruel cross. He paid our price on his body. He paid for our wage that we owed God for the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that death for us. He was buried on a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, Jesus arose again to live forevermore. When he did that, he offered us forgiveness full, free and forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God made us a promise that if you would just believe in him and trust in him. That you should not perish or go to that awful place called hell. But instead he promised you everlasting life. How long is everlasting life? Is that a week? Is that a month? Is it a year? It's forever. God gave you everlasting life as a gift. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For example, if I was to hand a gift to Miss Carol and say, Miss Carol, this is your gift. What must you do to make that yours? That's right. Did you have to mow my lawn for it? No. Did you have to pay me money for it? No. You didn't have to be nice to me. All you had to do was receive it. Well, the same thing's true about going to heaven. To go to heaven, you don't have to go to church. To go to heaven, you don't have to pay money to the church. To go to heaven, you don't have to help little ladies cross the street. Now, all those things are good things and things we should do. But those things don't bring us to heaven. 
The only thing that brings us to heaven is that Jesus paid our price. And we come to the place where we personally ask him to be our savior. To forgive us of our sins. And he promised us and God can't lie. That he would give us forgiveness full, free, and forever. You see, that's the matter of influence. Why should someone even believe what I just said? Because of influence. I want to influence someone. I want to tell someone about the gospel. I want to tell them what happened to me. Why should they listen to me? Well, because of the life that we live. You see, it's very hard to influence your friends if you're sinning with them. For example, if you and I were over at the bar together and we were kicking back some cold ones and I looked over to you and said, you know, you're going to hell and you need a savior. Here's how to get saved. Do you think that person would really be interested in listening to me at that moment? No, because I lost my influence. You see, how we live our lives is important because it influences people to say what their message is worth listening to. That's what Queen Esther had. Queen Esther had a life worth listening to, and it influenced her stepson to be more um, generous, to be more inclined to help the Jewish people because the influence she carried over him. We all have influence, whether it's over family members, whether it's coworkers, neighbors, we all have influence. We have to guard it and use it wisely. How is your influence? If you were to go over to your neighbors right now and say, would you come to church to me? And they were to say, why in the world should I go to church with you? What type of lifestyle, what type of influence, what type of uh, message does your life carry to make them be thirsty for it? Someone said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah, but you could put salt in their oats. <laughs> Are you making people thirsty around you? Are you making them thirsty for the things of the Lord because of your life? That's the influence we need to be keeping and guarding and protecting. Because we can't make them believe. The only thing we can do is influence them with our lives to believe the message we share. Let's guard our influence. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.